Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. On August 10th, Hamid Nouri, a former prosecutor in Iran, went on trial in Sweden for his alleged role in the executions of thousands of political prisoners in Iran in 1988. According to the indictment brought by Swedish public prosecutors, Nouri is accused as part of the systemic execution of thousands of political prisoners in the summer of 1988. The historic trial against Nouri will hear testimonies from dozens of witnesses and it will be the first time that one of the worst crimes of the past 40 years in Iran will be examined in a court of law. In July of 1988, the Islamic Republic of Iran agreed to bring an end to the brutal eight-year war with Iraq. Over the next two months, under the orders of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini, political prisoners around the country were secretly brought before a tribunal panel that would later become known as the Death Commission. They were not told what was happening and did not know that one wrong answer concerning their faith or political affiliation would send them straight to the gallows. Thousands of men and women were condemned to death and many buried in mass graves in Khavaron Cemetery in the vicinity of Tehran. Through eyewitness accounts of survivors, research by scholars and memories of children and spouses of the deceased, the new book Voices of a Massacre reconstruct the events of that bloody summer. Over 30 years later, the Iranian government has not officially acknowledged that they ever took place. In the foreword to the Voices of a Massacre, Professor Angelo Davis writes, There may be those who argue that these events took place long ago and that there is little to be done today. But the fact that it has been more than 30 years since this atrocity took place is an even more compelling reason why an international solidarity movement is needed to support the demand to render the Islamic Republic of Iran accountable for past as well as ongoing acts of repression. I spoke with Nasser Muhajir, prominent Iranian scholar and the author of Voices of a Massacre, about the 1988 executions of Iranian political prisoners and the significance of Hamid Nouri's trial in Sweden. Hamid Nouri is in his early 60s. Little is known about his background, but it is certain that he was an assistant to deputy prosecutor in the Buhardash prison during the great massacre of political prisoners in July, August 1988. As we know, in that massacre, some 5,000 political prisoners were perished in the prisons of Islamic Republic of Iran throughout the country. Uh, Many survivors of the massacre have witnessed that he played an active role in questioning the prisoners before the massacre started, escorting the listed prisoners from their cells, blindfolded down a dark hallway to a room where the commission of death, and I talk about the commission of death later on, this is a committee whose members were selected by Ayatollah Khomeini, a four-member committee, one of the members of which was Mr. Raisi, 
the actual president of the Islamic Republic of Iran. In a recent article by Mr. Donesh, a well-known political prisoner in the 80s, we read that uh, Nuri was also engaged in uh, making trumped-up charges against political prisoners. Donesh talks about a uh, long dialogue with him in his office in Gohardasht prison. And Gohardasht is one of the two prisons of Tehran. I mean, Gohardasht is actually in the vicinity of Tehran. But, you know, the massacre of political prisoners started first in Evin and then in Gohardasht. Danish talks about a discussion that uh, he had with him in his office and explains very clearly how the conversation was totally distorted when it turned into a report that was delivered by Nuri to the commission to interrogate political prisoners and decide who should be killed. This demonstrates another aspect of his active role in preparing the list of prisoners who were to be executed in that purge. Nuri was arrested on a visit to Syria in November 2019. That is almost two years ago. Lawyers determined that he could be persecuted in the Scandinavian country under the principle of universal jurisdiction, which allows certain types of international crime to be addressed in foreign states no matter where or how long ago they took place. Nuri is being prosecuted for war crimes and murder. The war crimes is related to the military excursion of the Mujahideen Khalq right before the executions or the verdict, the edict, the fatwa issued by Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, and uh, he's also being persecuted by murder. First, the Mujahideen prisoners killed in that massacre, and second came the left-wing prisoners who were executed. For them, for the left-wing prisoners, which there is no fatwa as of now, I should say no known fatwa as of now by Ayatollah Khomeini, the Swedish court and prosecutors decided that uh, this second wave of uh, massacre should be called murder according to the uh, legal language. Dozens of victims, witnesses, and experts are expected to take part in this court. Your book, Voices of a Massacre, Untold Stories of Life and Death in Iran, 1988, provides a comprehensive record of state violence and its astounding impacts To begin with, can you briefly tell us what happened in 1988? Unlike any other atrocities in Iran by the Iranian regime, this one was kept secret. In a nutshell, what happened was in the months of July and August 1988, a few months after the Iranian uh, government, at the time Ayatollah Khamenei, now the supreme leader of Iran, then the president of the Islamic Republic accepted the UN Resolution 598, effectively bringing ceasefire in the eight-year-old war between Iran and Iraq. And a few days after the ceasefire, after Khamenei, the then president, 
announced that the Islamic Republic of Iran is prepared to accept the resolution. Ayatollah Khomeini gave a speech, and in this speech, he compared the acceptance of the ceasefire as drinking from a uh, chalice of poison. He made this comparison because for eight years, uh, the Iranian government went against all calls for ceasefire and the stoppage of the war with Iraq. And they were saying that we are going to invade Iraq. And the invasion of Iraq means the beginning of exportation of the Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution in Iran to the neighboring countries, to all Muslim countries. And this was to make Islamic revolution a regional phenomena, and it would be the best safeguard against all the big and small satans. Uh, this is the term that they used at the time, you know, for uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, Emirates, the Qatar, or uh, another big satan for them, the Israeli uh, government. They thought that this is the best safeguard for them, and uh, by invading uh, or exporting the Islamic revolution to other countries, uh, they can make sure that they can uh, implement their program, and that is going back to the Islam of the Prophet Muhammad and the Islamic state that was created in Medina during Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam. So their utopia was a reactionary kind of a utopia, and they knew that this utopia could not be materialized in this world, that we are living in, you know, with all these developments after 13th century. This is, I think, to my understanding, this is why Ayatollah Khomeini compared the ceasefire with drinking the chalice of the poison. My understanding is that Ayatollah Khomeini knew that the utopia of making Islamic state as he dreamed of it, as he envisioned it, is finished after the ceasefire with Iraq. After the ceasefire with Iraq, they have to enter into all kinds of international relations and the dealings and Iraq will come out of isolation and become just a state like any other states, I mean, with its own particularities, of course, and has to go into these uh, dealings with other states. And I think that uh, probably he knew that not being able to make an Islamic Republic that they wished that he wrote off in exile would start the process of decadence of the Islamic Republic of Iran that we now witness very clearly that what is left of, you know, all those Islamic slogans is gone and we're dealing with one of the most corrupt, one of the most unprincipled regimes in the world. Right after this event, we see that the Mujahideen Khalq, they take this as a weak point of the regime. They think that the regime is in an internal crisis. And Mujahideen, just for our listeners, they were the Islamic leftist organization that was formed before the revolution. Exactly. As soon as we enter the age of modernity, in Iran, we have different interpretations of Islam, like many other countries in the world, with uh, 
the emergence of modernity, the age of reason, there are different interpretations of Christianity, Judaism, all major religions in, in the world. We had the same thing in Islam too. And then uh, what happens is that one of the groupings that tried to come up with a new interpretation of Islam, a modern interpretation of Islam, an Islam that can uh, reconcile itself with the necessities of the modern world, was Mujahideen. Of course, the Mujahideen were not only thinking of Islam as a cultural phenomena or as a religion, it was they were a militant political organization, and they emerged in the 60s, uh, a sort of an alternative. Soon after they came to the fore, the Iranian clergy was split into two. A very small minority started uh, supporting the Mujahideen, and the vast majority of the clergy thought of the Mujahideen as hypocrites and as uh, non-Muslims and tried to fight against them. Ayatollah Khomeini was leading the current that was portraying the Mujahideen as hypocrites and as people who do not believe in uh, the fundamental principles of Islam and are trying to renovate Islam and make a new Islam that, according to the fundamentalists, was doomed to failure and deviation of a sort. And as you write in the book, the Mujahideen's really tried to synthesize Islam and Marxism. But of course, we should also mention that Mujahideen of today does not look anything like Mujahideen decades ago. Permit me to add to what you correctly said, that at the end of the book, The Voices of Massacre, because the book have references to so many different organizations whose members were imprisoned, whose members were tortured, whose members were executed. And since the name of these groups uh, appear and reappear in the book, we decided to have an appendix and introduce all these organizations to the non-Iranian reader or the English-speaking reader. And there is a uh, short history, of course, encyclopedic, short history of the Mujahideen Khalq at the end of the book. Let's continue to what happened in 1988. Most of the victims in the 1988 massacre had been imprisoned following a wave of terror unleashed against the opposition beginning in the spring of 1981. That's when the dominant bloc within the regime tried to further consolidate its power. So what happened then is that the Mujahideen Khalq, who is now uh, in opposition, I'm talking about 1988, Mujahideen Khalq were one of the first victims, you know, rivals <laughs> always happened to become uh, victims. They were one of the first political organizations who were under the attack of the fundamentalists in Iran under the leadership of Ayatollah Khomeini. And in a few years' time, Ayatollah Khomeini thinks that he's strong enough to get rid of uh, the liberals uh, that he was working with and the different strands of Islam. They were all kinds of non-fundamentalist Islamic uh, tendencies that were working with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Here we're talking about 1981. 
Exactly. At the time, the president of the Republic, Bani Saad, was known personality in the opposition who had the background working with the Iranian National Front during the 60s and throughout his years in exile before the Iranian Revolution. He worked closely with the Confederation of Iranian Students and left-wing and liberals and pro-democracy currents. He was kicked out of power in a palace, kind of a coup. And then during this time, he sides with the Mujahideen Khalq. And we have this period of uh, severe struggle between the, the main two forces of which were Mujahideen and Bani Saad. And uh, on the other side, that the Islamic regime. Okay. During this time, according to Amnesty International, some 60,000 political prisoners were uh, arrested then. And we do not exactly know how many thousands were executed at the time. As you said in the beginning, these executions were not done in a secret fashion. They would announce you know, the name of uh, those who were executed in 1982-1983, in the major newspapers of Tehran, they would publish their pictures on the front pages of the newspapers. Even if they did not know the name of a person, a political prisoner who refused to tell his or her name to the officers at prison, uh, they would uh, say that this lady was killed at this date and we want her parents to come and identify her for us. So this was not uh, carried on in a uh, secret way by no means, but uh, we know that at the time they perceived themselves as quite in a dangerous position, no stability, they didn't know what will happen tomorrow, especially, you know, the coalition that the two main forces of which were Mujahideen and Bani Saad and other groups of left and pro-democracy individuals had joined them. They made an alternative, and this alternative was being supported by many political parties of the time in Europe. So they were thinking that, you know, their days are numbered, and it's a struggle, a life and death kind of a situation that they're in. So they wanted to terrorized the society and they wanted to spread fear and they wanted to tell people that you know if you're going to fight against us you're going to end up uh, being uh, dead and that for this reason they killed many 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 political prisoners they were torturing political prisoners openly this is well documented not only by uh, human rights organizations but by uh, people who were working with the Islamic Republic of Iran and even uh, by the heir apparent of Ayatollah Khomeini, namely Ayatollah Hussein Ali Muntaziri, who talks about the tortures and killing of political prisoners at the time. And this happens until, say, 1983-84. And from then on, you know, we have another period in prison that they wanted to make the prisoners repent and embrace Islam. In that, they were defeated too. Even one faction of the political prisoners at the time were uh, 
political prisoners who belonged to two left-wing organizations who supported Ayatollah Khomeini and who supported the Islamic Republic of Iran. And they even justified the killings and all kinds of uh, atrocities committed by the Islamic Republic of Iran against the Iranian people. I'm talking about the uh, Today Party of Iran, and I'm talking about the organization of Iranian people's Fedai uh, Aksariyat, the majority. Uh, well, they were in prison too. They were, again, you know, having the same positions, supporting, uh, yeah. quote-unquote, the revolutionary anti-imperialist line of the Islamic Republic. But they were uh, subject to the same uh, treatment, and they had to embrace Islam, and they had to repent, and they had to say that, you know, we denounce, you know, our uh, faith and we would become, you know, Muslims and everything. This uh, process that prison officials started in 1984 was defeated. So after the defeat of this uh, project, they decide uh, that uh, we did everything and we couldn't uh, make these people embrace Islam and uh, accept the correct line of Islam. So what happens is that there is this talk. We do not have the documents uh, for making uh, analysis based on concrete evidence. But many political prisoners were told that they will never be released and they will uh, be perished here in prison. And also, Nasser, we should mention that many of these prisoners were young and they were arrested for merely being an activist. They were not engaged in armed struggle. They were not engaged in acts of violence. They were just resisting and opposing the Islamic Republic of Iran. Exactly. And I thank you very much for Because it's important. Yes. Many of them, you know, were... uh, arrested because uh, they had a newspaper of this or that political organization with them, or, you know, they had a leaflet. I remember very, very clearly myself that the pastorans, the revolutionary guards, uh, would uh, roam the the streets of Tehran, and whoever they become suspicious of, uh, they think that he or she may be a pro-democracy or left-winger, they would come and arrest them. So a lot of uh, prisoners, you know, who were in prison at the time, they had committed no crime whatsoever, whatsoever. But of course, many were political too. And I, as I said, members of all kinds of political organizations at the time, I mean, they spared no, no one. All political organizations, non-fundamentalists, they had to be arrested. Even, you know, Muslim political organizations, even Muslim currents, circles that would not uh, go with the whims and wishes of Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic Republic of Iran, they were arrested at the time. Now, after this uh, ceasefire that I uh, talked about, what happens is that the Mujahideen Khalq, they were in the opposition. They had at the time military bases in Iraq and uh, they decided that the regime is in a weak uh, kind of a situation and it's the best time for them to attack the Islamic regime. So there is this military exertion exertion by them. 
from the western borders of Iran, they enter into Iran. From Iraq, they enter into Iran. In 48 hours, they were badly defeated. They lost hundreds of their uh, members of what they called the Iranian Liberation Army. And uh, many of them were arrested. Many of them were shot at spot. And some were taken to Tehran prison. And right after this military excursion, we have this edict, this fatwa by Ayatollah Khomeini. The fatwa doesn't have a uh, date on it. But the fatwa must be written during these days, a few days after the military excursion. I'm speaking with Iranian independent scholar and author Nasser Muhajir about his new book, Voices of a Massacre, Untold Stories of Life and Death in Iran, 1988. We'll talk more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihe Razozan and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. My guest this week is Iranian scholar and researcher Nasser Muhajir and I'm speaking with him about his new book, Voices of a Massacre, Untold Stories of Life and Death in Iran, 1988. Through eyewitness accounts of survivors, research by scholars, and memories of children and spouses of the deceased, Voices of a Massacre reconstruct the events of that bloody summer. Over 30 years later, the Iranian government has still not officially acknowledged that they ever took place. In the book, you say, even though we do not know exactly when this edict, what issues, you write that the evidence shows that the plan to purge the prisons was in the works months before the UN resolution, even though the actual executions happened a couple of months after the UN ceasefire agreement. But you say the evidence show that they planned to purge the prisons months before. Yes. What I'm trying to say is that this military excursion by the Mujahideen Khalq gave them the pretext to put into practice a uh, long-planned project 
that they had to purge the prisons. And eliminate all opposition. And eliminate all opposition. They knew very well that after accepting the ceasefire, they must permit the UN Human Rights Commission to Iran to inspect the situation of prisons. They knew that they had to enter into all kinds of relations with the international community. They were rejecting the world and all the institutions, the existing institutions before the ceasefire. They knew that with the ceasefire, they have to enter into the international community and accept the consequences of their membership. Does that mean that they also knew that they were losing this war really badly and they had to come to an agreement and they had to sign a ceasefire? So they were predicting a post-war situation for Iran. Exactly. And one of the things that they had to predict was that what happened really, you know, after the fatwa of Ayatollah Khomeini that was carried with deception, you know, people were thinking that this is a uh, amnesty kind of a commission that has come to prisons. And the prisoners had no idea whatsoever why they're being uh, taken into these uh, so-called courts. I wouldn't really call it court. To be exact, it was inquisitional tribunals. First, it was for the Mujahideen, and they were asking uh, the Mujahideen if they believed in that organization or not, if they would say that they believed in the organization or in the leadership of the organization, if they thought that the leadership of the organization, they were not traitors and everything, they would be executed. And that is why they started the executions with the Mujahideen and thousands of the Mujahideen were executed. And then they came to the left people. And with the left people, the questions were, as I said, you know, it's uh, inquisition. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in afterlife? Do you believe in Prophet Muhammad? Do you believe in Quran? Do you do your prayer? And a negative answer to these questions that, well, I don't believe in God. Okay, you have to be killed. Or do you believe in afterlife? If you didn't believe in afterlife and said, well, I don't know. And if you were not clever enough to say that, well, I'm thinking about this, just making up a story, you had to be hanged. I mean, that was your verdict. So what I'm trying to say is that the very reason, the very fact that political prisoners who were not Mujahid and who were leftists were killed at that instance shows that they had a plan and that they were using this situation created by uh, Mujahideen's uh, attack to Western borders of Iran to get rid of uh, political prisoners. The vast majority of these people were to be released in two, three, four years' time. And uh, they knew that, you know, these people who were steadfast political prisoners, they didn't change their position, even in front of these inquisitional tribunals, they didn't say that we have changed our beliefs system. They knew that, you know, if if they're released from prison in a country that for so many years, eight years, people were crying, you know, that stop this war. This war is not going to get anywhere. And uh, all their advisors, international advisors, different governments, they sent emissaries to Iran discussing, you know, with the leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran that this war would get nowhere. 
and your best bet is to accept a ceasefire. But they continued and continued and continued, and they made life miserable for people, you know, with the continuation of the war. And well, they knew that people, you know, were dissatisfied. People, but they had to make, you know, certain concessions. They can no longer deny people from many things because of the war situation and the scarcities because of the war and what have you. So they knew that with all these political prisoners who were uh, thinking uh, and believing, they had the same belief system coming out in a country that the vast majority of people. Did not want the Islamic Republic of Iran, they would be in trouble. So let's get rid of these troublemakers and save ourselves from the coming trouble. That is my analysis in a nutshell. The massacres began in the notorious Evin prison on July 28th in Gohardash prison near Tehran. On July 30th, it went on until August 15th. With short interruptions, you write. It recommenced in Evin on August 28th, and there are no records of how many were killed, according to Amnesty International. And as you said, we could be talking about 5,000 people. What explains the secrecy? Why was this done in secret? That's the first question. The second thing is, why didn't they just keep these people locked up? Because Some of these people, as you said, they were given long sentences, but they were re-interrogated in 1988. As to your first question, they could not justify the massacre. That was the beginning of them entering the international community and accepting, sort of, the international norms. On what basis could they say that This person was sentenced 10 years ago in 1981, this person, or 1982, this person was sentenced at uh, 10 years, and we are now in 1988, and uh, we retried the guy or the woman, and we decided to kill him. Why? Because he said that I don't believe in afterlife. I mean, it was impossible for them to justify this massacre in uh, any court of law, in any conventional kind of uh, existing institution. So that is, I think, one very important reason that they knew that they had no justification whatsoever to do this. Second of all, they did not really need to make people angry when they were announcing the killings uh, 10 years before then in the beginning of the 1980s, they wanted to create an atmosphere of terror in the society. They wanted to convey a strong message to the people that, listen, you don't enter the political scene. You enter the political scene, you will be killed. You will have no way to live your life any longer. Of course, this happened with uh, great purges in the institutions of the country, so many, so many non-Islamic teachers, university professors, government officials, uh, what have you, were you know, kicked out. They tried to make the bureaucracy completely made of... Uh, ideologically people. loyal people. Exactly, ideologically loyal people. 
at that time in 1988, they didn't need these problems. They just wanted to portray a different uh, picture of themselves. And uh, they wanted to say that now we have accepted you. And before then, for example, music was out loud, exactly like Taliban. After then, you know, step by step, uh, they accepted the music, of course, a certain sort of music. At one time, it was enough for you to carry a tar, the music instrument in the street, and then get arrested. But then, you know, after 1988, music was accepted, music classes was accepted. Of course, women were not permitted to sing. To this day, they are not permitted to sing in radio, television. Playing chess was uh, illegal before 1988, but Ayatollah Khomeini makes certain fatwas, playing chess legal and uh, stuff like this. So at the time, they had to give a different kind of uh, picture of themselves to the Iranian public and saying that we are going to make life a little more easier for you. If they would uh, announce the killings, uh, they would enrage the Mm. society. Nobody would understand what is going on. Why these people who had nothing to do with the war, Mujahideen, excursion, why they had to be killed. Uh, so this is the second reason. Uh, another thing that I, uh, it is very interesting for me, I was reading uh, an article in the New York Times yesterday. It was saying that the representative of World Health Organization was in Iran, and that the Iranian doctors who were to talk to him were advised by the Iranian government that uh, you should tell the representative of World Health Organizations, that we have no problem with vaccines. <laughs> we have enough supply of vaccines. <laughs> I'm sure you have read this article. The head of COVID task force in Iran said that they had been lying to people all along. Exactly. Only 3% of the Iranian population of 85 million people are vaccinated. Official figure says that 600 people die a day. Every day, yes. Every day. And 1,000 people are infected every day. The morgues are full, the cemeteries are full, the hospitals are full. People are even afraid going to the hospitals. So this is the mode of operandi of the Islamic Republic of Iran, to hide the truth from the world. This is an Islamic government that talks about ethics and about being right, being truthful. Now, what happened was that in 1988, a few months after the massacre, a commission from the UN comes to Iran. They are to visit the women wars. What happens is that there are so many leftist women who are still in prison. They were not uh, released from prison and they were not uh, killed uh, because at the time they decided to torture the women five times a day for each prayer time. And we do not know exactly how many women were killed under torture. We do not know exactly how many people lost their uh, sanity after five sessions of torture daily in order to accept that we are becoming Islamic. Okay, this is the torture that and the practice that the Iranian uh, political prisoners, leftists or non-Islamists were to face. Mr. Galindopol, the UN Special Representative of Human Rights Commission, is coming to Iran to visit political prisoners and see what happens there. With the men's ward, they had very few people in prison. The vast majority of the men were killed. 
and who were left, they released them, asking them to sign uh, sheets and make uh, allegiance with uh, Imam Khomeini. This was not the case with women. So what happens is that they decide <laughs> to make walls inside prisons, women's wards, and make the walls and restructure, redecorate completely the women's section so nobody would understand that in these rooms are women. And when I was reading this article in the New York Times that they were telling the World Health Organization that we do not have any problems. And Ayatollah Khamenei took a position a few months ago that vaccines that are made in the US and England should not enter Iran because this is to contaminate the Iranian population. And then uh, this is the situation we now have in Iran. But this situation must be hidden from the eyes of the world. And I see a similarity between what happened then and what happens in their day-to-day practice in terms of lying, in terms of distorting the truth, in terms of doing things in secrecy, in terms of not telling people what is going on. And the high price that ordinary Iranians have paid for all the lies. In the book, you have a lot of testimonies from prisoners, those who survived, write about what went on inside those prisons, how they found out. Execution was undoubtedly the punishment for the prisoners who were steadfast in their opposition to the Islamic Republic of Iran. However, before the execution, they were allowed to write their last testaments. One prisoner wrote, in the afternoon, one of the guys who had been checking the ward in front of ours realized that someone was tapping a message by Morse code through the window of one of the cells. It was a brief and clear message. In the unjust court, the amnesty commission of the regime has convicted me to death and I will be executed in a few minutes. They brought me here to write my last testament. How did prisoners find out what was going on and they could be executed? And we should also mention that this did not happen just in Evin and Gohardash. It went on in other prisoners in Iran, in Shiraz, in Mashhad and other cities. Well, it's important to note that in the beginning, nobody knew what was going on. As I said, for the first few days, people were under the impression that this commission is there uh, to, it's an amnesty commission. Later on, they understood that, no, this commission is there in order to have these interrogations and these uh, inquisition tribunals. But after a few days, people understood. And little by little, it became clear that this commission is there to kill people. And little by little, people uh, uh, saw that in their cell, say, 200 people were living in the world. In a few days' time, you know, they would say that 150 people are absent. So little by little, they understood that something bad is happening. And they also heard news through the channels that political prisoners have all over the world. And again, the story of, for example, some of these political prisoners, they really made big sacrifices, great sacrifices, to let other people know that this commission is to try you and uh, these are the questions that are going to ask just know in advance what is going on and make your decision 
in terms of how you want to answer these questions. Because in the beginning, people, when they didn't know, they acted differently in terms of you know, answering the questions of the commission. There is a very important testimony in this book, Voices of Massacre, by one of those prisoners who has explained in detail how they uh, tried to diffuse, how they tried to let other prisoners know what is going on. The story that I said about Mr. Galindopol and what they did with the women's uh, ward, there is an article explaining in detail by Lali Mastur uh, under the name of Ronaldo Galindopol's inspection of Evin Prison. And she explains in detail what they did in order to hide the fact that there are women political prisoners right now in the Islamic jails. So going back to your question, in the beginning, we have two phases, I would say. One phase is that the phase that it's total darkness. There's another phase that to certain degree in certain jails, people know that the commission is here to decide who must be killed and who must not be killed. And they know to different degrees what questions they are to confront and answer. The death commission was really truly bipartisan. It included Ibrahim Raisi, deputy prosecutor at that time, and now president of Iran, and Mustafa Pur Mohammadi, who was then the intelligence ministry representative in Evin prison and later became Minister of Justice in President Hassan Rouhani's administration. So can you talk a little bit about the composition of this death commission? Who did make the decision for these prisoners to be executed? The four people who were to make the final decisions was the religious judge, then it was the prosecutor general of Tehran, and then a representative of the Ministry of Information. The religious judge was Nayeri, and his name is specifically mentioned in the fatwa of Ayatollah Khomeini. Also, the name of Ishraqi is mentioned in the fatwa of Ayatollah Khomeini as the prosecutor general of Tehran. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in the fatwa also says that a member of the Ministry of Information should be there too. He doesn't name anyone. But who is there is, as you said, Gurmahamadi. Raisi, to this day, we do not know exactly how did he end up in this committee as a major character. His name is not in the fatwa. And maybe one of the reasons, this is an open question. We still do not have any source whatsoever to explain to us how did this guy ended up in this committee and became a member of the committee, and not only a member of the committee, a very active member of the committee. One reason may, may be that one reason, and it may not be a major reason, but we know that Ishraqi was not as active as other members of the committee were. We know that the two most active members of the committee were Nayeri and Raisi, the religious judge and Raisi, who was the deputy of the prosecutor of Tehran. He played a very important role, a very major role, he was the guy that always with Nayeri would go from this jail to another jail. They would take the helicopters going to different cities near Tehran, would take plane to go to different provinces and make decisions. The decisions that we make was based on two things. 
First, their direct interview with uh, political prisoners. Second, these interviews was always based on the file that they had at their hands. God knows if they ever read these files before going to the tribunal or they would just take a look at it real quick before the inquisition or what have you. But what we know is that they had these files and the files said who these the prisoners were and what they did. In fact, your first question about Hamid al-Nuri, he was one of those people who would make these files, who would make reports about political prisoners. And we know that in one case, as I said, the case of Danish, everything that he said about this person was lie. So they had these files in front of them based on the files that they had and based on the questions that would directly pose, they would make their decision and they didn't have to have anyone to okay their decision or not. Ayatollah Khomeini, in fact, makes a statement that it is very interesting for you to know. We have published it in the book, the fatwa, and we have translated the fatwa in the book, and I read it for you. In the name of God, in all cases mentioned above, if anybody at any stage insists on hypocritical position, and this is about the Mujahideen, the hypocrites, religious term, they are to be condemned to death, liquidate the enemies of Islam rapidly regarding the method of reviewing the cases, whichever is faster should be considered. So you can see the justice of the Islamic Republic in these four lines that I read to you from Ayatollah Khomeini. In late July of 1988, prison authorities removed all televisions, radios, and newspapers from the ward, suspended all family visits to prisons across Iran. So these families, the families of those political prisoners were left in the dark. How did they find out that their loved ones were executed? Very, very good question. Well, the families, well, they had their weekly visiting hours. This week they go, they say that there is construction in the jail, in this jail or in that ward. We cannot let you in. Next week they go, they hear the same thing. Next week they go, they hear the same thing. Fourth week they say that we cannot let you in. We will let you know later on. And this is in an atmosphere that in the Friday prayers, they're talking about killing the hypocrites, killing the enemies of Islam, killing the collaborators of Saddam Hussein, and getting rid of all these atheists and apostates and what have you. So after a few times of going to prisons and not hearing anything and not being able to see their loved ones, not being able to give them food, money, the things that families you know, usually take for their loved ones in prison, after a while they become suspicious that something is going on. And then always there is something that is leaking and coming out. So they understood that something is going wrong. And they decide to contact people in exile, people, their families abroad. And there has been a very active kind of relationship between the Iranians inside and the Iranians outside. So the news comes out and people become worried. They contact different human rights organizations, newspapers, And the most important credit must be given to the families of political prisoners, 
to what we call the, the movement of Madaran Khawaran, which is uh, more or less like the movement of the Mothers of Mayo in Argentina, who were quite active, unbelievable bravery in terms of going from this ministry to another ministry, pursuing the subject, going to Ayatollah Montaveris, Abbott asking him what is going on, what is going on inside prisons. We haven't been able to see our loved ones for weeks and uh, we are suspicious. Uh, we do not know what is going on and what we hear on the TV and radio and Friday prayer. The atmosphere is tense. So little by little, people in exile they contact Amnesty International, the Human Rights Watch, the UN Human Rights Committee, newspapers. And uh, again, after the killings are, are finished, then uh, we hear more news from prisoners who were writing the name of their cellmates who are absent. They knew that they were killed in this massacre. So the names come out. And I think that it is in November or December that the first list of some 2,000 names come out, out, out that we know that these people were killed. Also, it's important to note that Ayatollah Montaziri, when he hears this in a discussion that he had with Nayiri and Ishraqi, he tells them that I have heard that you know, some 4,000 people have been killed. He makes this a statement that this is one of the most serious crimes committed by the Islamic Republic of Iran against innocent people. There is a section in your book, Past and Present, that you have written an introduction to. And it is an interview with Furugh Lotfi, the mother of Anushin Ravan Lotfi. Furugh Lotfi passed away in 2019. She was one of the most prominent figures in the movement of mothers of Khawaran. She's revered across the political spectrum because of her continuous struggle for seeking truth and justice. A small framed picture of her son was always hanging around her neck. Her son, Anushiravan Lotbi, was imprisoned both under the Shah and the Islamic Republic of Iran. He was executed in 1988 and his grave is in Khawaran. So tell us about Khawaran, where some of these prisoners are buried. It was a, a doomed land in 1982 when they started the first wave of massacre that we talked about. We had to find a place for burying a non-Muslim atheist apostates according to their understanding of Islam, an atheist should not be buried in a cemetery alongside a Muslim. So non-Muslim opponents of the Iranian regime or non-Muslim people had to be buried somewhere else. I have written the details of this decision based on uh, what they have uh, themselves revealed about this in different documents, newspapers, interviews that they have made. I have written in detail about how they decide to make this place uh, in the vicinity of Tehran on the road to the city of Salveh, allocate this place uh, for the non-Muslim political prisoners. When the Iranian Majlis removed Abul Hassan Ibn Isad, the first president of the Islamic Republic, from the presidency, there was a demonstration in Tehran 
different uh, forces, different people and different uh, thoughts participated in this demonstration protesting uh, this undemocratic uh, move by the state. And uh, again, this is interesting to mention that uh, right after this demonstration that Pastor on the Revolutionary Guards attacked the demonstrators and killed some and arrest a score of people who were participating in the demonstration. The next day, five o'clock in the morning, they execute seven people. And when they execute them, they say that these were the people who were arrested in yesterday's uh, demonstration. None of them were in the demonstrations. All of them were people, you know, who were in jail for months. And uh, since they wanted to announce the war against all the people, you know, who do not believe in the Islamic Republic and the pro-democracy movement, they say that, okay, these were people, you know, who were in prison. But not everything was in order at the time. So they buried them in Behisht Zahra, which is the main cemetery of Tehran, and uh, they're there for a few uh, days. But with the establishment of the new line, and as time goes by, they decide that we have to do everything according to the rules that we have made. So those people, the seven, who were not Muslims, are moved from Behisht Zahra to this doomed land, the Khabaran. And they are the first prisoners, non-Muslim, all of them Marxists, communists, who were buried in this new place. And then from then on, all the non-Muslims who were being executed inside jails in Tehran and in Ebin prison, they are carried to this barrier place. It's important to note that they are not permitted to have a stone grave. They are not permitted to plant trees, flowers, nothing. It should be a land, all sand, stone, with no sign of anything. And we know that what happened in 1988 with the massacre, they actually constructed mass graves and they uh, buried many people in these mass graves. When you're talking about Mother Lutfi, Mother Lutfi finds uh, her son in one of these mass graves. And it's important again to know that this evidence of crime, a crime against humanity, they have done everything to remove all evidence of their crime from there. At this moment that I'm talking to you, I'm not even sure if there are bodies there or not, because they have bulldozed the place so many times in spite of the movement of the mother of Khavaran that, uh, okay, leave this place to us. We don't do anything with it. We just try to keep this place. This is the last uh, remnants of uh, our loved ones and we will keep it. There was this suggestion that, okay, turn it into a park and let us, you know, have the names of our beloved sons and daughters there. But nothing. They never listened to any of these demands. And what happened was that now we have a piece of land that we don't know what 
it is it is like any other piece of land and we don't know if even a bone is there or not because of what I just described to you in spite of all these people on the Iranian New Year the families of um, executed go there they get together there in different occasions yeah. and, uh, and also to... we should mention that it's not just the Khavaran um, the Iranian regime has tried to destroy and bulldoze um, grave sites in other parts of Iran, including Ahvaz, for example. And there was a report earlier this year that long persecuted followers of the Baha'i faith in Tehran have been told that they must bury their loved ones on the mass graves of political prisoners. Exactly. Well, you asked me about Khawaran, and that is why I confined myself to Khawaran. Yes. But as you said, you know, all over Iran, you have these uh, so-called cemeteries, bare lands, doomed lands, uh, that political prisoners or prisoners of conscience are buried there. And uh, as you said, again, with the Baha'is, the same. Uh, since the Baha'is uh, are not Muslims, they cannot be buried in uh, Muslim cemeteries. In fact, Next to Khawaran is the main uh, Baha'i cemetery that was created uh, a few months after the revolution because in the beginning even the uh, Baha'is didn't know what to do with their dead ones. There was such a struggle, you know, to convince the Iranian regime that we must have a piece of land if you don't permit us to bury our uh, dead in uh, regular cemeteries. We, We must have somewhere to bury and stories on this subject of Baha'is that were dead for so many days, they didn't know where to take them. They were in worst situations. But uh, in spite of all the pressure on the Baha'i community and on the Baha'i cemetery next to Khawaran, Tehran, the Baha'is were conscious enough and aware enough not to succumb to the plans of the regime and bury their uh, dead in Khawaran, uh, respecting Khawaran as it is and asking for more land for their dead. What has been the role of former political prisoners, those who lost their loved ones and ended up living in exile, in exposing and shedding light on what happened and shining light on those dark years. What's been their role? Because 33 years later, we see that one of the members of the Debt Commission is now the president of Iran. And um, he's not remorseful of his past actions. So what do you see the role of activism in the diaspora and how it has culminated to where we are today. We have seen so many books published. Yours is one of the most comprehensive ones in English, or I should say the first one that goes into details about what happened in the 80s in Iran. So talk a little bit about the public outcry and activism around this issue over the years and how it got us to where we are today. Well, in diaspora, the month of September, and this is the month that the family of political prisoners in Iran have decided as the month of the martyrs 
that is a name that they have used. In the month of September, there, it's now over 20 years that uh, there are ceremonies, memoirs, different activities happen around this issue. And uh, uh, we have tried our best to keep this alive. And uh, really, each year, the awareness about this crime has increased. In the beginning, a minute portion of the society knew about what happened in the summer of 1988. But again, with the efforts of the mother of Khawaran, on the one hand, the political prisoners who left Iran and came and wrote their memoirs and gave speeches and press conferences exposing this crime with certain opposition forces who really took this seriously, the Iranian human rights uh, activists outside, it has now become a uh, ceremony of a sort, using a very Kopstown term. It's making it tradition, really. It is now in the month of September. It has become now a more or less tradition to talk about what happened. And each time, each year, we get more information about how this crime happened. Uh, We have more than 150 memoirs, but even though we can claim that we have good prison literature, but still there are so many people who have not uh, talked, uh, who have not written their memoirs, who are not ready to relieve this nightmare, because it's not easy to remember such things. It's not easy to write about it. It's not easy to talk about it. But in spite of all the difficulties, now more than ever people know about this national catastrophe in Iran. Mm. The trial of Hamid Nuri would be a, an important event, maybe a watershed, in terms of taking this news to the vast majority of the Iranian people. Because people who knew about this were mainly people who were somehow politically conscious and everything. But now, you know, all these uh, Iranian TVs outside of Iran, radios outside of Iran, they have a good number of listeners in Iran. From the day one of this trial, August 10th, the coverage that has been given to this uh, trial has been really good. Some of the former political prisoners or their loved ones or activists and researchers who are not comfortable with showing up on these Iranian television channels in Europe and in the U.S. have utilized social media to spread their message and their experiences and their testimonies. Exactly. I guess the last question is, what does justice mean for people who are still trying to figure out what happened and what should be done about the perpetuators of those crimes, whether it be persons or the state as a whole? And I think this is a question that you have asked and you have thought about for many years. You have interviewed former political prisoners. Many of those mothers are gone, but they have talked about what they wish to see happen. So can you give us an overview of the spectrum of what justice means to the survivors of these massacres? And also how the society as a whole should deal with this 
crime in order to be able to move forward and make sure it doesn't happen again. The last chapter of the book, uh, Voices of Massacre, is about this issue, call for justice. There are three main currents, trends, in the Iranian uh, justice-seeking movement about what justice means in this case. And I have tried to ask more or less the representatives of these three currents to explain how they envision the future and what they expect to happen. One thing is clear that as long as we have the Islamic Republic of Iran, as long as this regime is in power, we cannot talk about justice, really. We cannot think of commissions, you know, that uh, created in, even in South Africa, I mean, after the change of power, you know, we saw the committee there or in Latin America, in Tunisia, it is interesting because the power is still there and, you know, they're doing things. In certain countries, it is happening with the more or less democratization of the society. Somehow it is related to the democratization, the process of democratization, or the degree to which we get to justice has to do with the degree to which the society opens up and prepares itself, announces itself ready to shed light on its dark past. And there is no society that we know of that doesn't have a dark moments, but there must be this readiness to shed light. There are people in Iran who have not shared their stories yet. They're afraid to talk. So I think that's also an important factor. Exactly. But what everybody is asking are very basic demands. Why were they killed? Where are they buried? Many of the political prisoners that were killed, their testament Their last will was not given to their families. The questions are very simple. Show us their grave. Give us their testament, their last will. Tell us why they were killed. And tell us why you did that to them and how. These are the very basic questions that people ask. Now, who was involved and how they did this and, you know, the decision was made. All these fundamental questions and political questions that should be relegated to the regime that replaces this Islamic Republic of you. Angela Davis wrote the foreword to the book. She writes as challenging as it has been to begin to tear away the cloak of secrecy. This story of flagrant repression is now clear. While the actual magnitude of the massacre still remains to be confirmed and many more specific details will continue to be revealed. Voices of this massacre call out to us, we cannot remain silent. I think that's what needs to be done until we reach that day when we can discuss this freely in a democratic society. Beautiful conclusion. Thank you so much for reading this part. I'm humbled and honored by Professor Davis, also by Professor Judith Butler, Professor Abraham Yan, Professor Gunther, Payama Akhaban, and Professor Shahzad Mujab, who wrote blurbs for this book. Angela's introduction is moving and talks about things that are very important for a person who wants to read about the history of the massacre. Nasser Mohajer is an independent scholar of modern Iranian history. 
He has authored many books and written numerous articles on contemporary Iran, including The Prison Systems of Both the Pahlavi Dynasty and the Islamic Republic, Women's Movements for Equal Rights, and Histories of the Iranian Left. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Mm-hmm. 